Hi everyone. Before we get started with this week's episode of Sound Notes, I thought you might be interested to know that Leading Agile recently released an all-new case study that follows the journey of a large technology company as they embarked on their Agile transformation. The case study begins with a thrashing organization that was unable to make and meet their commitments and walks you through some of the steps they took to stabilize their system of delivery and how they were able to parlay that system into becoming the type of organization that could pivot and emerge into new markets. So if you'd like to learn how our client did it and how they were able to achieve a recurring year-over-year benefit of over $3 million, head over to info.leadingagile.com slash study and download the case study today. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile's Sound Notes. Ross is back. Ross, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. I, I'm guessing <laughs> you're getting sick of me, Dave. I know. This is like the third one in like a month. This is great. I appreciate you making time to do all these. And it's actually, I think one of the most fun parts for me is that you and I, even though we haven't really dug into it, I can tell that we have differences of opinion about lots of important things in our lives, like our feelings about which type of technology we lean for. I'm assuming that you don't have an iPhone. Uh, yeah, that is absolutely correct. And anybody who's known me more than five minutes knows that. <laughs> As anybody who's known me for more than five minutes knows that I'm a total Mac bigot. So this is going to get us off onto a good footing. So, um, Ross, could you tell the folks um, a little bit about, just in case they haven't listened to the other podcasts we've done, tell them a little bit about your background and the work that you do and why you persist in supporting those folks in Redmond. <laughs> sure. So grew up as a... Uh, system engineer configuring Microsoft tools and technologies to do business process management workflows and uh, for enterprise customers. Uh, moved through be becoming an enterprise architect and then started uh, seeing some flaws in um, how work flowed through places and got into this agile coaching realm, which I've been doing for uh, the last five to seven years, give or take, depending on where. I was at uh, at the time. I, I did an agile transformation for a few months on my contract, and then switched back to enterprise architect, and realized I wanted to continue down the path of doing transformational work. So that's how I ended up here, and get the pleasure to talk to you three times in a month. <laughs> and so, are you one of those people that, when you found agile, was like, "This is the answer that I've been looking for"? Um, no, not really. I'm, I'm kind of funny in that because I. I feel like the exciting part of any of this work is the change leadership aspect of it more than the specific methodology. Now, I will say I believe that you can do anything in an agile way, and I believe that it helps businesses realize their revenue and margin targets regardless of what they're doing. So I totally believe in enterprise agility, um, but I'm not a, you know, pure agilist type person or uh, anything like that. I, I see benefits of certain things, but I think that uh, everything has its place and we just need to figure out what place that goes and, and who, what types of people or who are the best types of people to get that work done. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, and so for the folks that are listening, for the, for the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to be letting my, my 15 years of project management that I had before I got into Agile 
take charge of my brain for a little bit because we're going to talk about um, agile transformation offices and we're also going to contrast it against PMOs and talk about how they may be similar or different and, and what happens to the poor people in the PMO now that we're moving over to agile. So um, <laughs> agile transformation offices is, is something that, I mean, that specific phrasing is something that I think I probably first heard I think from Chris Beal, and it was probably two summers ago. But um, can you talk a little bit about what that actually is for the folks? That, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's people listening that aren't familiar with what an ATO is. So how do you describe it to somebody who's brand new to the idea? Sure. So an ATO is the, you know, basically the execution arm of the system of transformation. And so what they're doing is they're – the ones who are building a coaching practice, training coaches on how to be coaches. Um, they're the ones who are determining a backlog of expeditions and, and helping the rest of the system of transformation or the, leadership, the transformation leadership team or the executive steering committee understand how to um, prioritize expeditions around business goals. They are the ones who are measuring the effectiveness of a transformation against business metrics. Um, they're really the drivers of the transformation, and they do um, road mapping. They do discovery in figuring out how to build an expedition. Um, they are going to execute and deliver on transforming uh, the teams in, in this, the vertical slice or the expedition that we create on getting to the base camp targets that they have. Um, they do change management, and they're going to show how to measure the change against those business goals. I think that's the biggest thing um, that I've seen from a, the difference between an ATO that Leading Agile stands up versus ATOs or Agile Centers of Excellence in other places I've been um, is not being able to link the outcomes of the ATO to business uh, case level metrics, and that's very important. So I want to I want to talk through three different examples, um, just to make sure that this is totally clear for the folks that are listening. And I also want to see check in with you and see if how this syncs up with what you just said. So when I was doing transformation work, it was the companies that I worked for. They'd send in like three or four of us. We would do a couple pilots. We teach people how to do Scrum or Kanban or whatever, and then management wouldn't support it because they didn't really want to have to change. And, but we'd keep it going until we left and the whole thing would collapse. And then there was the model where um, somebody in HR or somebody in the PMO said, you know what, it's great that you guys are here for right now, but what about when we bring in new people? We need a center of excellence so we can have standardized practices, so standardized decks, um, standardized reporting, things like that, that everyone's supposed to follow, even though what we're teaching them is every team should be able to find its own way. But you're talking about filling in the piece that's missing from both of those, which is not just capturing things like velocity, but capturing any kind of data that demonstrates an impact that this transformation has on the business and on what what outcomes the business is looking for. So we might be agile, but is it really giving us any value, right? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, one of the examples is that um, my current client, we've been, you know, given a opportunity to, to actually prove that Basecamp 2, from a leading agile perspective, actually gets product at the door faster. So we need to figure out how we're going to 
capture those metrics and how we're going to link them to revenue targets in the business unit that we're at. And that's, you know, being able to explicitly link transformation to a strategic goal like increasing revenue or reducing uh, cost or, you know, increasing speed to market. If we can link to something specific and in the company's strategic plan to show the value, uh, velocity, even if you go all the way up to initiative level of velocity, is never going to show that because it's a an arbitrary uh, factor that's really geared around improving the system, not improving our performance against corporate goals. Okay, so I want to come back to the corporate goals thing in a second, but for the for folks that might not be familiar with Basecamp two, what are the characteristics of Basecamp two? Basecamp 2 is really characterized by getting to business agility and lean systematics in, in, your, in your system of delivery. And that's captured by reducing um, scope per item, so reducing the batch size of things, and really shows how to, by reducing size and focusing in on one thing at a time, how you can increase your speed to market is the fundamental of Basecamp 2. Okay, so we would want to have some way of being able to show to senior management that now that we have this stuff in place, we've got stable teams, we're delivering working tested software, we've got solid backlogs, we're now moving on to the point where we want to show you we can take an idea and get it into a state where we can put it in people's hands and learn from it faster. Exactly. And if you remember from our conversation a week ago, <laughs> um, <laughs> we talked about uh, how the PMO. Um, and the release management PMO uh, got a handoff between them. And so we delivered code on time, but our release actually went out past that because of that handoff between the PMO and the release management team that was acting as a release PMO. And we weren't, you know, we weren't successful in actually getting stuff to market faster. We were successful in getting stuff to market, but we did not... Um, we did not get to a point where we could have that end-to-end -end delivery inside of a release with all the bells and whistles that the, the product team wanted um, in, in time. And so we were predictable, but and it was, so we hit our base camp one, we were predictable and we were delivering quality code, but we were not hitting base camp two because we were still slow. And that handoff between those two PMOs was part of that. So is it is it fair to say then that this Agile Transformation Office is going to be finding a way to help management understand that the, the infrastructure or whatever architecture is in place that's causing us to need to have these release periods uh, or this delay between done and shippable, um, that that is the thing that is preventing it and, and that it is something structurally in the organization that we're going to have to change? Exactly. Okay. So and that, I think that's a a really important point because when I started doing this stuff, it was just how many teams are they delivering? What's their velocity? But nobody was explaining to management how to interpret that stuff. And so when I would go and say, well, what kind of reporting do you want? They give me one of the four answers they had, which was utilization report, Gantt chart. That's that red, amber, green thing, or the old timey status report. Those are the only answers they had. But th so this office is going to have to teach them, to look for different indicators. 
Yeah, you know, the the folks inside of the system of delivery are going to use a wealth of metrics to determine how to tweak that specific system of delivery to get faster. What the ATO's business case metrics are going to look like are proving out that the transformation aligns to the achievement of the strategic goals in the company. So it's just a different type of metric. It's a business metric, not a delivery metric. And the system of delivery metrics are all, all geared around either uh, delivery or continuous improvement of that specific system where these metrics will be um, tying successes that those delivery organizations have to uh, business, business level strategic goals. And there will be some improvement stuff because the, the Agile Transformation Office is going to be the ones coaching those expeditions along. So they're going to look across both sets of metrics. But how, how do you prove that the transformation is successful? It's certainly not velocity increasing. It's showing that velocity increasing or feature throughput increasing or release readiness uh, being more predictable, how that ties to actually making the business money or solving some other problem that the, the strategic plan has aligned it as a goal for why we're doing things that we're doing. Yeah, I think, and that's, uh, I wanna just climb on that point for a second because for any of this to work, the business has to know why it's switching to Agile, not just let's get the Agile in here because it's the thing we are supposed to have right now. Right. Okay. That's a spot on. Okay. So, I want to try now to compare this to a PMO, and I'm going to try to make the argument for the PMO. Um, even though when I was doing stuff for, for PMI about, you know, the role of a PMO in an agile organization, my whole pitch was, this is a dead man walking. You don't even remember why you set it up in the first place. You think you're about control, and if you want to survive in an agile organization, you've got to develop a new, a new business model. You've got to figure out how to be a service organization that supports a changing company that's trying to adopt a completely different way of working. Um, now, at project managers, we generally think that we have the answers to the questions or can easily find the answers, but everything that we just talked about, I would not have been trained to know what even to look for in terms of Agile. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I and to the point, it's funny because I feel like a PMO in itself may not be something that would carry over once a transformation is complete, the PMO as an organization. So the people in the PMO, depending on where the transformation is going from a base camp perspective, there will still be a release schedule unless we get to a completely adaptive state where we're releasing as soon as something's done and we're fully automated and all those things. So the functionality of a project manager uh, managing a set scope in a set time period will always be required in, until it's not. And in most places, especially large enterprises, uh, it's really difficult to expect for the whole organization to get to a place where they can just deliver on demand when something's finished. So I think the role of project management and the function of managing a project um, stay is important. It's just the PMO itself. I don't think, I, I think you're right. When you talk to PMI, uh, I think you're right because I think that organization is no longer relevant once the transformation is finished. 
So do you think that, I mean, one of the cases that I've made for keeping the project manager around in the past is that a lot of folks, when they're taught to work with, you know, in agile teams and stuff like that, they're not necessarily taught how to speak the language that the people upstairs are speaking. Whereas a traditional project manager, somebody who's passed the PMP, you have to study all that stuff. You learn about the things they're looking for. And in terms of reports, I mean, creating reports is it's part of my soul now. It's just like something I figured out, like <laughs> figuring out what question they need answered and finding some way to convey that information. Um, I, that's something that I would expect any project manager to have the basic ability to do, but I don't know if I'd expect that from somebody who's gone through like a scrum training or a Kanban training. Yeah. And it's I, a team focus, not management focus. Right. And I, but I think also like when you, when you boil this down, and the way that I've always described to project managers who um, are struggling with the agile vernacular, the way I've always described different things is I try to align it to, you know, things that they're used to from a status and reporting perspective. So when you go to a product team, you know, end of release demo or feature demo at that product layer of the organization, you know, to a project manager, the best way to describe a feature is a milestone um, in their POAM, right? And, and it's a major thing that we have to do. I think the biggest issue that project managers have adopting Agile is the, the vertical decomposition of work because it, a feature is not a one-to-one -to, -one to a milestone because a, a milestone implies a phase or a handoff. And a feature should encompass everything required to deliver to market. You know, whether or not you actually deliver it to market or you're on a release cycle or something like that is different. So I think the reporting up of feature readiness or, you know, feature completion or um, ready for release is kind of different because it's not a linear checklist that they can cover like it used to be before. You know, first we're going to get some requirements, then we're going to do some design, and then we're going to start executing, and then we're going to do our tests, and then we can release to production. Okay. When we in the Agile form, form look at that, we want to do, we want to encompass all of those things in a single work item, whether that's a story, feature, epic, you know, initiative and upward or downward. Um, it's really hard for them to wrap their head around what does it mean for a story to be complete? Like, what's the next step? And yeah. de depending on how you're delivering, that could be the only step. You know, everything in the story was covered. Um, we encapsulated all the people we needed to deliver that story on a team. So we're not handing off between teams or groups or functions. We have all of the functions we need on that team to deliver. And that story is done. So technically, it could go out. Um, they can go out in the wild to users. And I think that mindset shift from a horizontal status reporting perspective to a vertical status reporting perspective is really hard for the PMO to wrap their head around. Yeah. Um, now, the beauty of having an ATO and creating coaches and implementing coaches to work with folks from all different functions in the organization is they're the ones who are responsible for making sure that everybody in their vertical slice of the organization understands the vernacular of Agile. And, you know, when I start with people, I uh, equate features to milestones, but then I start to talk about how they're different. And then feature throughput 
it is way more important for that project manager to be tracking than milestone completion because they are going to need to understand how much of the scope of a release they're going to get out as, as quickly as possible so they know they can report up to senior management or the C-suite that, yeah, we're going to get 15 out of the 17 features we planned into this release based on our feature throughput and what's been done, what's in the backlog. Or, hey, we're going to get 20 done. We're going to have three more features than we planned in our you know, quarterly plan or annual operating plan or whatever the case is. Um, we're ahead of schedule. We're going to get more out. And that visibility and understanding of vernacular that Agile uh, allows to that project manager is way more valuable. They just need to understand how to use it and, you know, kind of release the uh, importance of the SDLC. All right. So I want to, I'm going to try to react. I was listening to all the things you were saying and because I'm letting the project manager part of my brain kind of run wild. I want to describe yeah. what was happening just in case there's folks that try to make this pitch to, to project managers. Um, as a project manager, I see my role in the organization as I, whatever I'm working on, I'm the person, like I'm, I always describe it as like, I'm the guy on the wall in Game of Thrones. I'm the only guy on the wall. I'm the one that's watching everything. I'm the only one that knows everything that has to happen. And it's my job to make sure it all happens. And I'm the only one who's paying that much attention to everything. And when you say to me, hey, you're going to become a release manager, my initial like emotional response is no i tell the release manager what to do don't <laughs> turn my job into the release manager please you know and so and that's totally arrogant and wrong and i'm not discounting the role of the release manager but as a project manager i see myself as being kind of that that being a reduction in my responsibility um and so I'm wondering yeah, just what, what, you, what you would say to that. Like, how would you respond to somebody that you had react like that? Yeah, I mean, my response would be, how, how many times have you gotten all of your scope from beginning without any refactoring project plans or any of that done in the time frame you said you were going to do it? First Never. Go, Never. With no mistakes. Right? Not Never. Once. Because part of that is the command and control attitude that a lot of project management people have where they're the last guy on the wall, you know, I'm the only person that knows what's going on. When in actuality, project managers have a, a lot of breadth of understanding of what's going on, but no depth. So they can't really understand, you know, what an architect understands about a solution design or what a developer understands about code. And the plans usually get made without including those people. So the beauty of an agile way to do it is all of those people are included in the planning because you're planning the work from idea all the way through to inception, not uh, horizontal handoffs against skill sets that you don't actually understand. And that's really hard. It's probably going to be really hard for our project manager friends listening to hear that, but it's true. And one of the big reasons why I hated being a project manager so much because, you know, I did it for a few years and it sucks because you're expected to have responsibility or accountability over things that you have no you idea <laughs> what's going to exactly. happen or not. Yeah, exactly. I always say like, nobody wants that job. Nobody is. It's like some kid is a kid child's like, I want to be a fireman. And another kid's like, I want to be yelled at for things I can't control. Um, 
Nobody wants that job. So, for, so uh, to offer some some hope to the project managers that are listening, for me, one of the things that shifted was I, I went into a scrum master role, and um, there it became instead of worrying about a schedule, I worry about people and care and feeding of people and helping people succeed and deliver and doing whatever I can in service to them. And that opened a whole new set of problems for me to worry about. And I think if you wanted to go down the release path, there's a lot about flow. Like you mentioned throughput and things like that, that, that is efficiency is the thing that you kind of key on there. Right. Right. And you know, project managers in my experience, and I haven't worked with every project manager ever, but the, the ones I've worked with feel like they're managing the people. Yeah you know, and telling people what to do, um, which was never great for me. And I'm an, I, I'm a former enlisted person in the military. And even when I was in the military, I didn't like being told what to do, even though it's like 80% of your job, right? Right. Because that is, man, you can't manage a person. You have to figure out how to motivate and lead a person to do what you need them to do in the system. And the best way to do that is to manage the system through understanding what's going through that system from a flow perspective. And that's where those delivery metrics we talked about go in. But we're still talking about execution. And this is the biggest reason why the PMO, in my opinion, can't become the ATO, because the PMO is focused on execution. And the ATO is transformative. And it's change management, change leadership. It's a lot different than um, executing, creating a plan and executing against the plan. Now, there are some of the aspects to that in an ATO because you're going to be planning expeditions and making sure that coaching happens and targeted coaching happens after that and getting the, the expeditions to the base camp level that they're looking for. But that's it. That's the execution part of it. The rest of it is transformative. It's mindset shifting. It's behaviors. Uh, it's It's leadership. And that's the big thing for me that the PMO is focused on management and management. You can manage things with no issue. You can manage schedules, you can manage systems, you can manage stuff, but managing people, especially experts in their field, and you're trying to tell them what to do and how to do it like that is never going to be successful. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So if it, I want to see if you agree with this and then I'm going to go on to the next part, I would say that the PMO in, in there's very many different forms of PMOs, but the PMO as a general concept came about as a solution to a problem that existed in the past in most organizations, at least if they're moving towards agile and trying to get a PMO to help an organization moving over to agile that created awareness of the fact that there's this other gap and that is there needs to be a group of people whose focus is not on like producing a product that we ship but helping this organization learn how to culturally and in terms of work practices adopt a completely different way of working is that do you agree with that yes okay now now if we have an agile transformation office at some point um Hopefully, agile practices will be in play. We'll have a fairly, fairly standardized approach to that, or at least a widely understood approach. But do you think that at that point, the agile transformation office 
would need to evolve into something that is more about an organizational change office. Because if we're going down this path, it seems like we're going to get to a place where the only, only thing we know is that every day this company has to keep changing and morphing to survive. And, and tracking rate of change, capacity for change, is that something that we should be looking at too? Yeah, and there is definitely um, a sustainability aspect of transformation, right? You're going to get to a point you're going to have to be able to sustain. But hopefully you get to a point where the agility of the business is no longer around reorging how you work. It's, a, it's around reprioritizing and resequencing the things that you want to get to market. That's really what business agility is aimed for. It's, it's aimed for reacting to market need as quickly as possible. It's not about continually changing the organization or updating a practice or a process. It's, you know, and that's another place where I think the PMO, you know, wraps their hands around things because they own specific processes like the SDLC or, you know, regulatory processes or whatever the case is there. And they believe that they're changing the organization for the better, but they're really just manipulating the practices used and the organization stays projectized. And the, the projectized organizations can't be uh, reactive to market demand because the way the projects get set up in projectized organizations is based on a, a budget that's already allocated and, and a clearly defined scope. And if you have a clearly defined scope and you've already started funding that project, it's really difficult to shift to market demand. Now, when you have products and a product life cycle and an organization of all the roles required to deliver that product to market, and you have a backlog of things that that product wants to do, and you start working on one, but you want to change the next, the order of the next five, it's really easy to do that because everybody understands what's in those five things. There's people responsible for priority. There's people responsible for informing sequence if there's any kind of dependencies or things like that. Um, and it's really easy to shuffle the work. And the greatest thing about that is if you move one epic up to the top of the list and you've decomposed features and stories, uh, it's really easy to find those features and stories. But if you're talking about a nebulous milestone with high level tasks in a project plan and you try to shuffle that around, you're not ready to do that yet because that's not a backlog of things to do. That's just the list of tasks that we want to check off on a process. And so the meat of what the change really means is completely unknown and you know nobody wants to eat the mystery meat, right? But if you shuffle a project plan around, that's what you're doing. Okay. So I'm going to say this and I want to see how you respond to it. Let's say that I'm listening to this and I'm feeling skeptical about it um, because I work in a field where, you know, you mentioned some regulatory stuff. I've, I'm doing pharmaceutical stuff. So I've got all these different hoops that I have to jump through to get the drugs approved. And, you know, it's great that we have this experiment fail fast thing going on and all that, but I legally am required to do certain things. And part of what the PMO was created for in my organization was was to protect us, to make sure that we dotted all the I's, that we didn't let anything out the door that didn't meet whatever government specifications we had to meet. Um, how is the ATO going to handle that? 
because that is still, I mean, as it comes down to us, still very project centric, or let's say it's CMI or MI or ISO compliance or something like that. Um, how does the ATO handle those types of things? The ATO would handle that by designing the system of delivery that's delivering that type of product in a way where the governance model and workflow make sure that it encapsulates all of the requirements from a regulatory perspective to deliver that product to market. So having a some kind of development life cycle, whether it's a molecule development life cycle from a pharmaceutical perspective or a software development life cycle is great. The issue with that is that it's subjective and it's driven by a single person or a couple people on every project. When you include from a design perspective, the exit criteria per phase or per step in the governance model, the governance model flows the way that the work actually has to flow to get to market. You don't need a cop checking to make sure that the SDLC or MDLC or you know XDLC, whatever it is, is followed because everybody's responsible for making sure that exit criteria is met before it moves to the next step of the governance flow. And everybody has a responsibility to either do one or all of those things on the exit criteria list in that team. And we're encapsulating the decision authority to that team to make sure that we're doing everything we need to do before we move from phase one to phase two. Okay. The other thing is, it's kind of funny that you mentioned this because at a current client, I was working on a regulatory process for software as a medical device and breaking a linear process into being able to do it per epic, where I'm taking a major version of the documentation as a release and each minor version. So if I have version 1.3, that means I have three epics in scope for that release. And I'm building upon the documentation as work is discovered through the governance model using the cross-functional teams with representatives on the governance board for the safety and other concerns around medical devices and software as medical devices, and ensuring that the documentation is adequate to be approved. And the first time it went through this system, the documents were approved first go with no issue, and the people on the approval board were stunned that none of the documents <laughs> from this particular product team had to be revised and they were all just approved. Okay. So I just to, to dumb that down for the folks that are listening, people with my background, um, you're treating them like acceptance criteria. If I have to deliver these documents, I can't accept the work or call it done until those documents are delivered with the product. Right. Okay. Um, and so when you were talking about this, you talked about, you know, everybody knows that we have to do this stuff, but the, now we have this thing where I've got to create a working environment where people not only know, but they rise up to it, which it was a lot easier to get away with that kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying, look at the racy chart. I don't have to do that. It's his job under, under waterfall. And that was one of the things the PMO was acting like the cop for. Right. Yeah. And, and when you have, an SDLC that's just a document somewhere and it's not built in built into actually how the work flows through a tool to um, manage the system of delivery, you need a cop doing it because there's a checklist on a Word document and 
you know, you need somebody to print it off and go through each little deliverable and, you know, write the check mark there. But yeah. when all of that's encapsulated in the system of delivery is designed by an ATO for that specific product lifecycle that they're building a vertical slice of the organization to deliver against, and it's built into the tooling and it's built into the teaming agreements and it's built into the governance model, uh, the the guy with the pencil and the checklist is um, a lot less relevant because everybody sees the checklist all the time. Every meeting they have, every day, they're talking about the checklist because they're talking about their workflow and their tools and their work items, and they're working together to deliver a product. They're not working individually to check some tasks off of a list on a project plan. And that's the biggest difference from my perspective on how the PMO is designed to monitor development of anything versus how the ATO is designed to build and implement and coach and monitor the progress of delivery organizations that are encapsulated to deliver a specific product. And that's really from a ATO to PMO difference is, is there. Now, with that said, the folks that work in the PMO now um, project managers, you know, program managers, those people still have stuff to do inside of the system of delivery. It's just, it's the command and control parts done. And like okay. in one client, I equated the project manager and program managers to the department of the exterior and the product owners and solution architects as the department of the interior. So the product folks and the solution folks were focused on describing and, and managing the workflow inside of the system of delivery. And the program and project managers were responsible for orchestrating anything outside of the system of delivery and making sure that it was done on time. So risk management would still be a function of those roles. Dependency management, cross-team communication and collaboration, uh, any kind of vendor management or if you're buying anything as part of your solution. So there's still a ton of work to be done. The difference is letting go of the cop mentality and start being a doer on the team for the things that the governance model and exit criteria and acceptance criteria of work items need you to get done so we can deliver our product. Okay, good. So their jobs aren't necessarily, they don't have to go get a completely new line of work. They just have to shift their responsibilities. Oh, man, I was working on one engagement where a coach had told the project managers that their jobs were going away. And, and like my response was, who the hell is going to do all the work that they're doing? You know, like they're still doing a ton of work. So my perspective is I didn't, I didn't need a PMO anymore once I got all of the product teams stood up for product delivery. But there was still a PMO for the non-product delivery work that was getting done outside of product delivery. It's just that I'd rather have project managers in my delivery organization driving those external factors so that yeah. the people who are doing the work inside of the product organization can, can do what they need to do to get product out the door. And, you know, it's a trust thing, right? And this is, you know, one of the big things about Agile is, you know, people over process, right? You, you want your people on your team, you want to trust them that, hey, project manager Dave, you're going to go knock down this barrier for me that's external so that I can focus on creating 
the most flexible solution architecture for our product that we're deploying. And you're going to go figure out whether or not we are going to do it in the data center or if you're going to provision me some AWS servers and create an AWS account so we can get that done, right? So it's just a different aspect, a different way of looking at things. It's first team versus second team. Like, I don't care if you get assigned from a PMO, but when you get assigned to my team, we're first. And okay. you're going to do okay. what you need to do to deliver this product, and all that PMO stuff is second. You okay. Know, I don't I don't care about SDLC checklists because if I have all my checks on the SDLC checked off and my product six months late, who cares? Right. So, so what I'm hearing is that for an organization to have an ATO as well as a PMO, that's not necessarily an issue, but the, the focus of the PMO and the work that they do is shifted. I think, yeah, the, the scope of the PMO it goes down because they're not focused on product delivery projects anymore. Okay, good. So, and then, but there still could be a PMO if there's any aspect of work that we're doing that needs to be driven uh, by that type of, of resource. And that would follow some kind of linear DLC of some sort. So there could still be work that would need to follow in a PMO vein, but yeah. the ones that have transformed, I don't want a PMO. I want a project manager to manage that external stuff. I don't want the rest of the PMO. I just want that person with that skill set to be part of my team to drive forward what we need to drive forward to get stuff done. And I don't want them to think that they're in charge of everything. I want them to understand Here's the scope of your role. You handle everything external. Um, get that done so we can get the internal stuff done so that we can deliver our product. Okay. So this is my last line of questioning for you. Because this project manager voice in my brain heard all the things you said, totally agrees with them. I got a little upset <laughs> when it seemed like you were taking some of my job away. But now it's cool. I get it. So we're diminishing some of the power that my PMO had. That's okay, because now I get to go set up. I take some of my PMO guys. We're going to set up the ATO, and we're going to run Agile Transformation. Why is that a bad idea? Why is the project managers going and setting up the ATO? Because <laughs> they set because. up the Agile Center of Excellence. Why shouldn't they set up the ATO? Well, if the Agile Center of Excellence was successful, we wouldn't be setting up the ATO, would we? <laughs> um, <laughs> But, um, do you, but do, you, do you see where my brain would automatically think, oh, well, clearly this is going to be my new job now? Yeah, and some of, some of the folks in the PMO may have the skill set to do it. Okay. And, but the PMO doesn't just automatically become the ATO because the PMO doesn't have the aggregate skill sets to lead a change, manage a change, design an organization, implement a new organization design, uh, and tie execution and delivery against an agile mindset and framework and measure and make decisions on how to improve that system as it goes forward. You need folks like you who have project management experience, right, but yep. are agile now. People like me who have enterprise architecture experience but are agile now that can not only describe the reporting type stuff that you talked about the PMO driving before to leadership, um, but can train the teams on new vernaculars, practices, 
culture that the system requires to deliver the product. And I think that's the biggest thing is that um, the PMO, in my experience, has always focused on a, this is how we do stuff, so get it done this way, where an ATO designs that organization based on the needs of the product getting to market, and it's not one size fits all. One expedition may do things completely different than the next, but the people inside of that ATO need to be able to understand all those things, work together to design that organization, governance flow, entry and exit criteria for phases, acceptance criteria, all that good stuff to make sure they, that new organization get their product out the door. And having a focus on one function like project management or enterprise architecture or whatever you know the next function is eliminates your ability to do that. So you need to have people who have a breadth of experience across um, all different types of getting work done, whether it's lean, Kanban, Scrum, XP, you know, safe, less, you know, any of those other frameworks that can part and parcel something together that's going to work for a specific product delivery organization and be able to change and adapt that to any product that comes through, but still be able to link the efficiencies to that business case reporting that we were talking about in the beginning of the call. And yeah. I don't know that um, most people that are PMO specific or most people that are architecture specific or product specific can actually accomplish that in and of themselves. So the ATO is a collection of different types of functions that all have that agile background that can work together to design those those organizations inside of the enterprise to be more effective. Yeah, and I would also, just to, to add to that, something that I picked up from an interview with Marty like a year ago, we were talking about reporting and how you have to have people in there that not only know what kind of reporting you need today, but what kind of reporting you're going to need to be looking at in six, eight months. And I think a lot of the times when people in the PMO set up the SDLC or whatever process, it's very kind of Mandalorian, this is the way, um, and it's, <laughs> these are the shoes you will wear until you are dead and you get them when you're four years old and they don't fit when you're 16, but they're the only shoes that you have. Um, you need people that understand how the change is going to evolve, how it's going to impact what you're going to have to do to react to it and things like that along the way so that it's not trying to squeeze everything into the same format. Yeah. But if you get shot in those best car shoes, it'll just bounce right off. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think if 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 we were look to looking at just a software organization, um, if I was a PMO person, I would probably, for simplicity's sake and the ability to train other project managers on how to do the SDLC stuff, I would probably want to design a specific SDLC and make all of the different engagements or product development things that I have going adhere to that SDLC. And that is rigid as hell and why PMO and ATO are completely different because the ATO is about focusing on enabling a business to have agility through intelligent, specific design based on each product organization that we're going to have an expedition with. And so I think that the, the predictability of the SDLC 
from a PMO perspective isn't getting software delivered, it's being able to explain why we're not getting software delivered through metrics. And I think that's the difference. Cool. This was awesome. And I want to offer you congratulations. Nobody's uh, out geeked me on Mandalorian stuff in a podcast, so nice job. <laughs> Wow, I, uh, that sounds like a real badge I, of honor. I it is. I feel, sh- I feel a little bit of shame. I had to look up Beskar. I'm like, damn, I got out geeked on my own podcast. Um, this is cool, though. Thank you very much. If people want to follow up with this and talk to you about it more, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, um, ross.berman at leadingagile.com. I'm on LinkedIn as well. I will probably share this post once it goes on. Um, so you can always hit me up there and then the bio page that you post as always, I don't do the social medias, so can't find me there. And, uh, that's about it, Dave. It's always a pleasure, man. I really appreciate talking to you. I have to think up some new topics so that (laughs) we can keep this flow going. This is great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for taking the time. Likewise, Dave. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. You too.